I have found uh, this chapter this week and, and next week, or however many weeks we're in chapter 4, um, a difficult text to preach. Because when you read the words that James writes to the Christians then, is written to the Christians now. And the questions that come to my mind when I think of the body of Christ here at Discovery, and I think of Christians around the world, is there truly a difference between those who count themselves as a part of the body of Christ and those who are not Christians? Is there truly a difference seen between the world and your life if you call yourself a follower of Christ? I always wonder in the churches I've served is the church filled with people who profess faith in Christ but all week long live like the rest of the world. And I can't tell you how hard this week I felt distracted in this text and a great concern for the body of Christ here at Discovery. And he addresses a number of things in chapter 4 which follow after what we saw last week that there's worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and the result of seeking out worldly wisdom is what we're going to see here in chapter 4 but we need to seek godly wisdom but also live that out. And so does the world outside of the doors of discovery or your life see you any different than how they live their life in this world. And James is calling that all believers then and now would submit themselves to Christ, confess their sins before the Lord, and the key is humility, to humble yourself. And so the scriptural truth that we look at here in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 is this. God gives grace to His people who humbly submit themselves to God. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10 of chapter 4. And again, this follows what we saw last week in which James teaches the church. There's worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And if you seek worldly wisdom, there is a sinful, evil uh, life that follows, which we see here. And if you seek godly wisdom, then you're going to walk in holiness. So look with me at verses 1 through 10 of James chapter 4. James writes, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. The Word of God. Again, Father, I ask that You would work upon our hearts. 
that you would move us to be people who submit to your word, to be humble, and to flee from the things of the world. Holy Spirit, teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if you feel that same seriousness as I read that, as you looked at the text. He was writing to the church in different places then, and it's for us now. What I preach this morning is preached to myself as well to all who hear it. And there's a serious problem. The first thing we see in verses 1 through 3 is that there's wars and battles among the body of Christ. I mean, who would say that there, that's, that's a wonderful thing in the church, right? No. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? The words that he uses are very strong words. The word quarrels meaning war, fight, battle, dispute, strife. He's talking about this happening among the body of Christ. He's not writing to non-Christians. He says fights, which means combat and battle, contention. There's disputes and arguments going on among the body of Christ in different places when James writes. And I would say that that is the same among the body of Christ worldwide today. That we find local gatherings of the people of God and there's quarrels and fights, even if it's not out loud and and in, in public for everyone, but behind the scenes and biting and attacking and the words that we say that these things are not anything new because over 2,000 years ago, James is writing to the church of these things. And he says in verse 2, or actually in verse 1, he said, here's the cause. Verse 1, is it not this that your passions are at war within you? Again, the church is being motivated to seek out worldly wisdom as he warned against, and it's seen in their passions that they search after. He says in verse 2, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Maybe the church was not murdering one another, but as Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount, that if you hate someone, it's the same as murder, that you covet, that he says that these things, so you fight and you quarrel. So your homework would be to go back and read chapter 3 this week, because again, he set the stage at the end of chapter 3. It says you pursue worldly wisdom. This is how you're going to be as the body of Christ. In James chapter 3, verse 16, he said, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Do you think there's jealousy and strife among gatherings of believers? Would we dare say that a Christian would be jealous of another Christian? Is there strife that happens in the, among the body of Christ? Of course there is. Someone says something and someone gets offended. So someone tells their friend who's a Christian, oh, I just am telling you for accountability, when what it is, it's gossip. James says, we're not, we're not to have any of this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2 is a great text that we've come to many times because it describes the life of the believer before they were a believer. He says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he writes, Paul writes to the Christians there and says, And you were, past tense, dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you, past tense, once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, who is Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And so we can rejoice. The believer can rejoice being made alive. But we should not be surprised when we see this activity of the dead person who we were at one point happening among the body of Christ because we have not been perfected yet. We have not been glorified. We're not with the Lord. And so we still battle with sinfulness every day of our life. And that pervades the body of Christ. And so when we do not submit to the Lord, when we do not humble ourselves, all we want to do is live like the rest of the world. And it happens among the body of Christ. And then we're surprised when, oh, that brother, that sister did this. They said this. We should not be surprised because there is this longing of the old person to go back to how we were dead before Christ made us alive. Go back to James in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. If you go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, Jesus says to ask he tells you to pray and ask of our... We were just singing, our Father, He's a good Father. Yes? No? And we just read earlier in James a few weeks back that the, the, whom all of our good and perfect gifts come from our good, good Father that we were singing of. Jesus says to pray and ask of your Father, even though He knows everything you need before you ever ask of it. He says to ask. But here He tells the church, you're asking in a wrong manner. You ask and do not receive. Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. What are the things that you ask of which God doesn't want to grant you because if He gave it to you that you would spend it on the fleshly passions of your life? Some of you wonder why I don't have this, why I don't have enough finances, why isn't this happening in my life? Because maybe it's one of those things that if God granted what you ask for is not what His desire is for you and He knows better that if He gave it to you that you would waste it and spend it on your passions. And it's hard living here in America. I would say in the world in general. But naturally, we want to seek out our own passions here in this nation because America pushes from the very beginning, from birth, that you should pursue the pleasures of your life. And if you get those pleasures in life, which you can in America, then you will be happy all the rest of your days. And you see people who pursue passions in this nation and in this world, and they go to their deaths in misery because all they've done is pursue their passions and have never found happiness and never found joy because their passion should have been pursuing Jesus Christ, where joy and peace is eternal and ever growing. <clears throat> I believe we seek out certain things in this world because we think it will make us happy. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is for a time. And as soon as that happiness goes away, what do you do? You go after it again or the next greater thing. And it's only there for a while. Joy in Christ is eternal and ever-growing for eternity for all who are in Christ. 
The word passions there, when he says in verse 3, you spend it on your passions, it's, it's a Greek word that we get our English word hedonism. And hedonism is a desire and a relentless pursuit of pleasure, of happiness. And so for the believer who's filled with the joy of the Lord because of the fellowship they have in Christ, there are times where it's almost like we forget that joy and we want to turn back to the pleasures of this world. And James is warning in chapter 3 and pointing it out here in chapter 4. Do not pursue the worldly wisdom because it ends in death. And so James calls all the believers out of this type of living, and then he lays it on even more. Look at verses 4 through 5. Second point, hostile enemies of God. That's what he calls the church here. When you act this way, he's saying you are a hostile enemy of God. And you say, wait, no, the Lord is my Savior. I am adopted by God the Father. I am His son. I am His daughter. Well, look at what he tells the Christians in verse 4. You adulterous people. Here God uses in His Word adultery as a metaphor to describe the people of God. And this was repeatedly used throughout the Old Testament, the nation of Israel being told by God's prophets, you are committing adultery in your relationship with God because you're going after other idols and other false gods and you're worshiping them and God is a jealous God. And so repeatedly, he says, you're a stiff-necked, stubborn people and you're adulterers. That's what he said to the nation of Israel and that is... What James is pointing out here and saying to the body of Christ. In Isaiah chapter 54, it says in verse 5, it describes the relationship between Israel and God's people today, between Him and the Lord. It says, verse 5, For your Maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is His name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. He is called And so when you read the book of Ephesians and you read the Apostle Paul talking about marriage, we think it's only a text for husbands and wives who are Christians, but he says this marriage relationship is the relationship between God and His church. And so there is this picture that when we flee after worldly wisdom, when we go after the things of this world, we are committing adultery like the nation of Israel is accused of. Three times or four times in Jeremiah chapter 3, it says, Israel, you have played the whore and have worshipped other gods. And we may think, well, we don't have, I don't have an idol of stone or wood or whatever carved sitting in my house on the shelf. But what are our closets filled with? What are our garages filled with? What are our homes filled with? What is on our TV channels and what is in our uh, web feeds? Whatever it is, what are the things we're doing throughout the week? What are those things that are actually idols, which God says, quit going after the whore. Quit uh, being an adulterous people. Love me, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Be obedient to my word. Pray and ask the Holy Spirit would empower you to follow after godly wisdom. Another homework assignment this week, read the prophet Hosea in the Old Testament, 14 chapters. Hosea, a prophet to the nation, had a strong message when God said, 
I want you to go and marry this promiscuous woman. He marries her. She leaves him for other men, has, brings him back. They have three children. One of them, we don't even know who the father is. She leaves. God tells him to go back and bring her back and love her. And in that, he says, that's the message of God's great love for his people who continue to sin and to turn against him, that he saves his people by the blood of Jesus Christ, and he does not let them go, and he will make sure that they finish the race and are with him in the inheritance that he's preparing now. But he says, don't be the adulterer. Don't chase after the idols of this world. Do not go after the worldly wisdom. And again, maybe the church, in, in, as James writes it, they didn't have stone idols, wood idols, or whatever. Maybe you don't have that as well. But it does say that they had friends. You see that? In verse 4, 3 and 4. Friendship. Whoever makes him a friend of the world makes him himself an enemy of God. And so when we are friends with the world and we live as the world, we're making ourselves a friendship, a partnership with those who are not of Christ. And what that is is a lifestyle that God has not called us to. Well, how do we do that? How do we make ourselves friends with the world? It's all kinds of things. Think about all the material things you own, what you put your money into from the clothes you wear to the entertainment that you take in to the issues that you support in life? How do you spend your money? How do you spend your time? What is your attitude towards your, your marriage? What is your attitude towards your children? What is your attitude towards fellowship in the body of Christ, in the Word of God, in the Bible? I think one of the things that we should pray for the church worldwide, not just Discovery, is that there is a continued growth where the body of Christ is comfortable not being in fellowship among the body of Christ. Well, what do I mean? Because of COVID and those things, what happens is people stay home. And yes, people deal with sick, being sick. And, and here we go. People are like, oh, he's getting political like last week. No, I'm not being political. You can make it political if you want. What I want to talk about is live streaming. So if you're at home watching all right now, hello. Glad you're here with us. I'm so thankful that we have live stream for those who are sick. Those who cannot be with us. But what we're seeing nationwide and worldwide is that for some reason, we no longer have to attend church. And I can replay church later in the week. This is not a bat you with a switch today. I'm just speaking reality. That you hear, I just came from a conference with a hundred and, I don't know, something pastors this week. And pastors talking about the, the church no longer gathering for the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the singing praises for the fellowship because they can get it at home. And when you live in a beautiful state like this or in Idaho where we were, go and enjoy all of creation. And when I get to church this week, I will. 
Those are things in which we seek after worldly wisdom. We need to be in fellowship and not neglect fellowship as the book of Hebrews tells us to. How do we spend our time and money and our energy? How do our spouses, how do our children, how do we lead them? Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. It says this in verse 15. Again, this letter is written to Christians. And it says this in verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Isn't that a challenge? We see things and we have a heart that wants to go after those things. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, again, the things that James is writing of that is happening, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We should pray that as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are doing the will of God and that we would know the will of God from the Word of God. And that when we see brothers or sisters in Christ who are straying and they're in sin, that we lovingly go to them and we call them back and to help encourage them with the Word of God that they would turn and they would confess their sins because He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Turn back to James chapter 4, verse 4. Do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, you have these warlike terms that not only wars happen in the church, but he's talking about war between you and God. And he's writing again to Christians, not to non-Christians. He uses the word enmity, which means to be hostile or to have hostility towards God. Is there hostility in your heart towards the Lord this morning because you're seeking after worldly wisdom? It says, when you make yourself a friend of the world, he says, you make yourself an enemy of God. That as we, can, as, as we are hostile towards God, that we are an enemy of God, specifically, as James writes, through our sin. And therefore, as we pursue worldly wisdom and we sin against Him, we make ourselves an enemy of our Lord and Savior. And what we're really doing is we're betraying Christ and His words to seek after something that the world would offer to us. If you go back and look at James chapter 2 where we were over a month ago, he was addressing then that they were showing favoritism and to other rich believers over the poor. He went on to say that they couldn't control their tongues that lie and speak horrible things. And with one word we bless God and the other we curse our brother and sister in Christ. And again, he was addressing what was happening in the church then. And I would say it is happening in the church now. But let us remember what we read in Ephesians. Believers used to live as hostile enemies of God and were great friends with the world before the saving grace of Jesus Christ to change us and to make us new and cause us to be born again. Romans chapter 6, verse 19. It says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented... 
your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. He addresses how we are as believers to live, to not live in that way, but to live in this right, Christ-like, righteous manner. So again, what has captured your attention in this world? What things in this world has captured your attention or you and your spouse's attention or you and your family, your children's attention that moves you away from godly wisdom that you would pour your life into worldly wisdom? What are those things that so entice your heart that cause that desire that you're just like, ah, and there's that battle. I want to do what's right the Lord has for me, and I also want to do this for sin. Oh, I want to do this, Lord, but yet I keep struggling with this. And we're able to praise the Lord, the Apostle Paul, and give thanksgiving to the Lord that in the life of the believer, that he has the victory and causes us to grow in him. And this process of sanctification being made more and more like Him and helps us overcome these struggles. In verse 5 of James chapter 4, he says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us? That is a wonderful, glorious verse. Did you hear that? He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us. There are six passages in the Old Testament in which God says that He's a jealous God. And when His people give their attention to the idols and things of the world, He is jealous over them. And here it is the same. That at salvation, at justification, the Holy Spirit seals the heart of the believer. The Holy Spirit of God enters the heart of the believer, makes us new, and we're sealed until the day of glorification. And as we seek after the worldly wisdom, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And God is jealous over your attention that you give to the world. And He wants your attention to be given to Him and His Word that you would seek Him in prayer and walk with Him that He would do a great work in you and He would receive all the glory. And so God is continually calling us to walk in Him. And what He calls for is that His people would have humble hearts and that His people would come to Him in repentance and confess their sins. Because as Jesus said to His disciples, the Holy Spirit, as I will leave, the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin and righteousness. And we can give thanks when we do sin and we feel grieved over it because that is God speaking to your heart and saying, flee the world. Look to my words. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. I'll give you rest. So in what ways, church, are you seeking out worldly wisdom? In what ways are you devoting all your energy and your strength and your time and your money? In what ways are you giving your family or your spouse over to the things of the world? Seek Christ. Go to His Word. 
and have a humility in your life. If you look at verses 6 through 10, the third point is grace, humility, and repentance. After all that James calls the church out on, and again, we come back to it next week, you can read on ahead, he brings out other issues to the church, and you read through 1 Corinthians, and repeatedly he's bringing out issues to the church that's living like the rest of the world. We need these reminders daily, church, that the Holy Spirit would remind us that we're struggling and battling in sinfulness, and we need Christ. And so, verse 6 of James 4, he says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You should highlight that, underline that, circle that, memorize that. You and I will never, in the face of temptation of this world, stand on our own and just decide to walk in holiness. It doesn't happen that way. It's the Holy Spirit working in you. And therefore, it's the Holy Spirit that brings that Scripture to your mind like, oh, at this moment when you're facing that greatest temptation and you feel like you can only but sin, there, the Word of God says there's no temptation that can overtake you, that God is faithful. He makes a way out. And so we must cling to Him and submit to Him because I don't know about you, but I can be quite a prideful guy even if it never comes out in front of you, in my mind. Nope. I'm going to walk for you today, Lord. I'm going to do this for you today. And that pridefulness crumbles, and you just fall into that pit of the things of worldly wisdom. There's no way that any of you, including myself, can ever do anything right and good for God apart from the Holy Spirit working in you to do that. There's no way. You can argue with me all you want, and all that is is the lies of the world saying, oh, we can be good moral people. You need Christ. You need the Holy Spirit. You need the power of God to make you stand and walk in holiness, righteousness, to be humble people who would repent, confess their sins to the Lord, and God says He gives grace to those who are humble. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 20. It tells us this, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What is Paul writing there? That God gave his law to his people and says, obey my law and don't break my law. But what has happened? Has everyone broken God's law? I heard some strong yeses, but I don't know if everyone's convinced. Has everyone broken God's law? Wow. That's horrible then. If we've all broken God's law, we've disobeyed Him. And according to His word, breaking His law leads to death. And there's nothing that any of you and I can do to get out of that. The punishment is death for breaking His law. And if everyone has broken God's law, then everyone should receive death. God gave the law so that you would see that you broke His law and you would see your great need for the grace of God through Jesus Christ His Son. 
And so for those of you who throw the Old Testament out and say, I only need to focus in the New Testament, you need to go and reread the Old Testament, and you need to look at the laws that were given. You're like, oh, but those Levitical laws and all that. Read God's laws. He gave them there for a reason, and in all of them, he says, as you do these things, they all point to Christ. You need to read the Word of God so that you're reminded that you've broken God's law. You've grieved Him. You've been an adulterous person. You've chased after the whore. And God is calling you to Him because He's the only one that can set you free and forgive you of what you've done against Him. Turn to Matthew chapter 18. I think one of the things that many times I hear pastors speak about this in churches in the South or, or Midwest and talk about people just growing up in church and having this religiosity and these things, I think um, it's all over. Many of you have grown up in churches. Many of you have told me years that you've been in churches. And again, I think what happens is there is this false righteousness, this thing of going, if I just do these things in this way, and it's like, no, you need Jesus. Just because you were in church, and just because you've heard the gospel preached all your life, it, nothing that you can do can set you free from the fact you've broken God's law. Matthew chapter 18 reminds us of what James says, you must humble yourself and submit to God. In Matthew chapter 18, it says this in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And so James says, God gives grace to the humble. He also says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Turn to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. In Titus chapter 2, Paul writes this in verse 11. For the grace of God. We all want the grace of God, right? We talk, Christians talk about you need the grace of God. Oh, I love the grace of God. Read what it says here. For the grace of God has appeared. Who's that speaking of? Jesus, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Just what James is warning of. And he says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Church, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you have broken God's law and God loves His people that He would send His Son, Jesus Christ, who would come and be born fully God, fully man, and He would go to the cross and he, because He never sinned once. He never broke God's law. He fulfilled the law and the prophets and therefore when He was nailed to the cross, the agony the physical agony and pain he went through was nothing compared to the fact that God the Father poured out the wrath that is meant for you for all eternity upon his Son. And he shed his blood. And his blood was poured out 
so that all the ways that you have broken God's law, every single sin would be passed over, forgiven, cleansed of, and you would be made the righteousness of Christ through faith in Christ alone. And Christ was buried, but let us not forget that He is alive. He is risen from death to life, and He's ascended to heaven where He's ruling and reigning. He is the King of kings now. We're not waiting for Him to become the King of kings when He returns. Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords now. So don't believe the rest of the world. Don't believe others who say, well, no, we're waiting for Jesus to come, and then He'll be King. No, He's seated on the throne now, church. That's why you trust in Him. That's why you can walk in holiness now. It says in verse 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Do you know that as you submit to God, which is submitting to His Word and being obedient by the Holy Spirit to uh, the Word of God, as you're submitting to Him, you are humbling yourself, and then you can resist the devil. You can resist the enemy as the demons, as Satan who throws those fiery darts at you as Ephesians chapter 6, because when you are submitting yourself to the Word of God, then you're obedient. Ephesians chapter 6, put on the armor of God. Pick it up, put it on. Pick up the shield which extinguishes the flaming arrows of Satan, of the evil one. Pick up the Word of God, the weapon that you have to be able to stand. Do you see, church, why you need to read the Word of God daily? Do you see why you need to pray for me as I pray for you that we would love the Word of God, we would dwell in the Word of God so that the Spirit of God would cause us to walk in His ways? You can't do it on your own. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how many years you've attended a church. I don't care what your heritage in your family is. You cannot live for Christ on your own power. You need the Word of God, you need the Spirit of God, and you need the body of Christ that we would walk in a right manner. Look at the last few verses here. Verse 8, simple. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Sounds simple, right? And when we understand... This work that God does, wow, what a glorious thing. He says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The key, again, to your humility and submitting yourselves to God is to remember how God does reveal Himself to us. This uh, weekend, our family was driving and we were listening to a book called The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. And there's this one line that just jumped out. And I remember my wife and I, we looked at each other like, did you hear that? And I'm like, I'm preaching on this this week. And the, the little girl, I can't even think of her name right now, but she's talking to Aslan. And she says that, oh, well, we called to you, Aslan, and you brought us here. And he says, Aslan says this, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you, says the lion. So when you read John 6, it says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the key to humility as a Christian in submitting to God. He says, no one can come to me. What the actual word in the Greek is this word dunami. It says, no one is able to come to Jesus unless, it says, the Father draws this Greek word helkuo or whatever, 
can't even pronounce it right, which means to literally drag off. And so no one can come to Jesus or has the power or ability to unless he is dragged off or drawn by God the Father. And when we submit to that, we elevate Christ and he gets all the glory. And we humble ourselves and we say salvation belongs to the Lord and not to ourselves. When we understand that, when we look at verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. God has done a work of salvation from beginning to the end before the foundations of the world to all of eternity. And as we see these things, that God the Father calls His people to Himself, to Jesus Christ, and they hear the gospel. And as the gospel has been declared here this morning, your response is Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And so our response is into God's drawing us and calling us to Him. And as the gospel is declared and we see our sinfulness because we've broken the law, we rightfully respond. And God gets all the glory. And the promise here is in His response. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. The promise is in His response that as we draw near to God as He calls us to Him, that He draws near to us. This sense that when you are saved by faith alone and Christ alone, that He makes you new and Holy Spirit dwells in your life. You are a new creature. You have a new relationship with God. You're not far off behind some tent and God's in that Holy of Holies. You now are there because the Holy Spirit lives in your life. And we are the temple of God. And we should rejoice in that relationship that we have. But as he calls us and says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Look at these last verses 8 and 9, pretty heavy words. Cleanse your hands, he says, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's to all of us believers. The nation of Israel had a priest who would go in to intercede. And the priest would wash their hands. And they would cleanse themselves and make sure everything was right. And they had to do that so they could go into this right relationship between God and the nation of Israel as they did these sacrifices. They were required to do these things according to the law. And it's a picture of confessing of our sins before the Lord, repenting of our sins. When it says cleanse yourself, it's the picture of cleanse yourself from the defilement of sin. Purify yourself from the wickedness. What wicked worldly wisdom have you followed this week, in the last month, in the last year, that you need to cleanse yourself from? He says, purify your hearts, because from out of our mouths, what it tells us what our heart believes in, cleanse, purify. And what is wonderful is God never calls you to cleanse yourself or purify yourself before salvation. Because if that was the case, we would believe that we could work ourselves to salvation. God is the one who does the cleansing, purifying work of your heart. And therefore, to be obedient, we go to His Word and we cling to His Word. And so we must, this morning, deal with the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Martin Luther wrote this, When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, He intended that the entire life of believers should be one of repentance. At the cross, 
we are forgiven of our sins. Past, present, and future. But Scripture continually calls us to confess our sins and repent of our sins. And as the Lord does that, He continues to cause us to walk in holy and righteous ways. Verse 9, James says, Be wretched and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to, to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. This picture of mourning over your sin, for they shall be comforted. When was the last time that the Holy Spirit struck your heart and you actually grieved over the sins that you committed? When was the last time that you prayed and asked, Holy Spirit, show me my sinfulness, that I would confess it to you and repent and turn away from it and turn to Jesus? Verse 10, he ends with this, at least where we end today. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. When a person who claims to be a follower of Christ, who says they're a Christian, but repeatedly refuses to submit humbly to the Lord, they are displaying a lack of saving grace in their life. We are to draw near to God by seeking His wisdom, the Word of God daily, in His Word, and in prayer and that as we draw near to God and God draws near to us through the work of the Holy Spirit, God will humble your hearts. You're wondering why you're dealing with such and such in your life. It could be possibly that God is humbling you, that you would submit more to Him in all of the ways of your life. And so when we are humbled, we are reminded of God's glorious power and might and love and forgiveness. And we're moved to worship God, not just through some song. Church, I need to preach another day on just worship songs and hymns and things we sing. Some song, it doesn't mean that we're worshiping the Lord. It's all in your heart. Romans 12, 1 and 2. So yes, we do worship the Lord and obey as it says to sing praises to Him. But we are moved to worship God in everything we say and do and breathe and act because of God's love and His grace and mercy upon us. And so we need to pray this morning. Because in just a moment, as the body of Christ, we're going to do what God tells us to do. As the body of Christ coming together in fellowship, we're to take bread and cup and remember Jesus Christ crucified, risen again for our salvation. And in it, we're told to have a certain response, a certain humbleness, submission to God. And so would you just pray with me as the worship team comes up? Oh, Lord, we lift up our souls to you. Heavenly Father, we trust in you. Lead us in your truth. Teach us. Father, remember your mercy and your steadfast love. Remember not our sins or transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember us for the sake of your goodness, O oh Lord. Father, instruct us in your way. Lead us and teach us to be humble. For your name's sake, O Lord, we ask that you pardon our guilt. Cause us to abide in you and have a holy fear of you. Keep our eyes always focused on Jesus Christ, our Savior. Father, be gracious to us. Bring us out of our distress. Forgive us of our sins. Guard the souls of your people and let us not be put to shame. Father, we take refuge in you. 
Cause us to walk in integrity and preserve us as we wait for your return. Redeem us out of all our troubles and be glorified in every day of our life. And Father, I pray that if any in this room have heard the gospel today and that they are not saved, that this would be a moment of salvation in their life, that Holy Spirit, you would show them their sins, you would convict them of their sins, and that they would confess you, Jesus, as Lord, and that they would turn from them and believe that you have died for their sins and forgiveness, and you have risen and you are alive. Father, would you work in this time in the body of Christ, in the unity that we have as we take this bread and cup together. In Jesus' name, amen.